we're working on it, we're drinking Cherry Bounce. Um, you said it, you were getting wine. Yeah. He just like opens it, <laughs> tastes it, and it's like, is this, is this a port? Is this a port? <laughs> My name is Elizabeth. I'm going to be your host. You can call me Liz. Um, with me today, I have Bud Light Limerita fan, Kendra Buckmaster. Hello. And then also with me today, I have Allie Dowdy. Hello. So, okay, why did you guys decide that you wanted to be involved in this? Because I just love talking about my favorite characters. And Kendra, what about you? Was it the joke? Was it the pun? Uh, of course there's a pun. Um, it was my pun, so of course I'm a fan of it. But um, no, I uh, I had not seen a an iota of Avatar The Last Bender, Airbender until it got put on Netflix recently. And upon many recommendations, sat down to watch it, watched the first couple episodes, had so many people say, hang on, it gets better. And I'm like, I am already in this. I don't know what you're talking about. Episode one, she's like, stop being sexist. I'm like, yep, here for it. To kick us off, we chose Katara, mostly just because she's really relevant right now. A lot of people kind of say that Katara is super annoying. I guess, how do we feel about the annoying aspect? I think I have watched entirely too much anime to find her annoying because she doesn't scream every time she talks it does happen she does lose her temper but like no so i've watched some anime but not quite as much um i definitely do agree there is no way she could be considered annoying compared to a lot of female characters in anime i didn't really pick up on the fact that a lot of people thought found her annoying until i um, was on Facebook and Reddit and found a lot of people complaining about her. Exactly. And I guess, um, real quick, I should just cut in and say, probably should have done this at the beginning, <laughs> but uh, we do not own Avatar The Last Airbender. We have never contributed to the series. We have no affiliation with Nickelodeon or anybody that owns Avatar. Um, we are just talking about this in the context of characters that we like from the show. Um and characters that like mean a lot to us. But if you like what you hear, DM me. But anyways, I agree with you on that, Kendra, that like she demands respect as not only a like a young master of her element, but she also demands respect as a woman. And I think that that's something that's really like prevalent in the show kind of overall. And one of the big moments for me, her standing up against Paku in uh, season one, episode 18, The Master Waterbender, it's not even the fight against Paku and like her demanding to be taught by him. She just completely refuses to apologize for being a woman. And to like give context to that situation for those who don't know um, and have never seen the show, uh, Katara is a waterbender. She's trying to learn how to master her elements. Um, she's never been taught because she's the only waterbender in the Southern Water Tribe. And she goes to a teacher in the Northern Water Tribe who refuses to teach her because she's a girl, which is because you get to go learn here. Healing, right? Because it yeah. was, hey, only men get to learn the aggressive wartime waterbending. Women use it for healing, which in and of itself, not a bad skill. Like, okay, thanks. I'll take that too. Why not both? The part, though, of that episode that always gets to me, though, is he doesn't give her the opportunity to learn because she stands up for herself. It actually turns into almost like a blatant form of nepotism because he sees, oh, you have this water or this necklace um, from your grandmother who I loved. And because you're her granddaughter, that's why I'm going to teach you. Counter argument. Maybe something about that linking, like him being able to frame her willfulness and her fiery spirit 
reminded him of Grimm and kind of brought back into perspective, like, hey, you know, it's been 50 years since you made that necklace, but do you remember why you loved her? It would have been nice to see more women being allowed to learn waterbending then at that point, like, and not just it being Katara. There was a scene, too, where she she walked into the healing tent. She saw all those little girls. And I feel like it was a moment of also realizing that these little girls were going to be denied the opportunities that she was currently being denied. And yeah, healing is wonderful. And I think it's awesome that Katara doesn't necessarily scorn healing as, oh, I am better than that. But just recognizing that this is important, but it shouldn't be what I'm limited to. And then seeing that those little girls were being limited to it, I think really hit her too, that this is a whole systematic problem in that culture. I'm not better than that, but I'm better than just that. Right. Exactly. You know, it, it shows young girls, you are so much more than other people's perceptions of you. And kind of speaking of perceptions, to kind of hit on, when I was doing some research about Katara, I found this article. um, Oh, is this your big mad article? Girl. (laughs) Wow. I walked around the house like screaming about this. And Arielle, actually, um, who is another um, girl who you guys will be hearing from on the podcast eventually, she actually pointed out to me that I was a little bit overreacting, I guess, about it. An article on thegamer.com, Katara facts that make no sense. It alludes to this idea of how in literature, there are two main ways to analyze a woman, a mother or a loose woman, because she doesn't allow the patriarchal society to control her life. However, she is also probably the best example of a mother in the Avatar universe. She looks out for everyone. She works on chores such as laundry and cooking and always worries about her friends when they're not feeling well. Katara does not seem to be the woman who would settle down and she has said as much. She makes no sense in a storytelling aspect because she doesn't fit either persona. So, that's, you know, that's really the only way I exist. And since I've chosen not to have kids, I've just become a loose woman. That's really the only thing I'm here for is to drink beer, margaritas, and, you know, screw around. Some of the cool ways that I think she steps in to be an assertive person while still being motherly. One thing that I think she was kind of forced into, she was a very little kid when her mother died, and she essentially had to step in to be the woman of the house. She had her dad and her brother. And in their culture, gender roles are very separated. So she was the one who was doing the cooking, the laundry and everything. And she stepped right up into that role. That was what she, that's all she could do. But it also shaped her into the person that she became. Um, Also, I find it really cool that she helped her grand deliver babies. So when they were on Serpent's Pass and the woman they were traveling with went into labor, she knew right away what to do. She was, go get me this and this. Toph, make me this tent. She, she ordered everybody around but in a way not in a bossy way we should just not even use the term bossy bossy is just bossy is just saying you shouldn't be telling Um, you yeah like i think bossy has become such a a mainstream way of watering down calling a woman a bitch and fans who here has ever heard a man be called bossy Never. No even one, as no a one little is raising kid, my hands right now. <laughs> like, even as a little no. kid, we complain about that girl's so bossy. But yeah, that, no, girls are bossy. Men take charge. Yeah, men take. But yes. in this case, Katara, this baby was coming out. And she was going to make sure it came out safely. Oh yeah, she has the 
I mean, she's she's like a doctor, a nurse, all all that good stuff. And she's like one. also uneducated too. Like she's not even like a fully educated scholar or anything like that. She's never painted like that in the show. But I back don't know. a long time ago, women they they might not even be able to read, but they were delivering babies. They were caring for sick right. people. They were they were running everything they, from birth to death to sewing burial shrouds to including their own and caring for children caring for other people's children and they're they weren't educated it was what they did and i'm sure those women took charge as well in the same way as katara otherwise things wouldn't have gotten done so what do we think about this idea that like women are either you're either a loose woman or a mother and to kind of expand on that too um referencing the actual Yale that edu article I use. There's the virgin, the seductress slash goddess, the mother slash wife, and the old maid are tropes or stereotypes of women in literature and fiction. And it seems very focused on their sexuality too. Oh, absolutely. The seductress or the old maid. What the hell is that? Plus it kind of, it overshadows the fact that older women can be sexual. I mean, isn't that kind of one of my favorite things that they've ever seen is that um, the women say, hey, cool, like menopause is over. I don't have to worry about getting pregnant. Like I'm coming into my own now. Like, yes, please. With women, specifically older women, especially like I think that right now we're like living through a very fortunate like sexual liberation of of older people. And it's becoming such a more understood concepts. I mean, we all kind of laugh about how the villages in Florida, which Kendra, I know you're probably pretty aware of this, is like one of the highest concentration of like STDs in the elderly in the country. And they're from the generation that wasn't taught how to do it safely. It's at that point, though, I feel like, you know, you are so right that they weren't from the generation that gave them sexual liberties to do these things safely. They were just told not to do them at all. Like, I don't know. I think it's just a super boxed in way to look at women. And Katara definitely doesn't fit into either one of those. I don't think either one of the categories of the mother or the loose woman, you know, she's obviously so much more, she has so much more depth than just a mother character. I mean, look at like decisions that she makes later in the show are like decisions that like a mother would absolutely not make. Please tell me how a homicidal revenge exactly. over story arc yeah. is motherly or virginal or seductress. Yeah, I guess like, and I and I didn't mean to say like not a decision a mother would make. Like obviously, like mothers are multifaceted and like you know deep individuals and as well. Would murder if for their children, right? And this is just like you this know, is like revenge. Yeah, she sets it's out total, to inflict like, pain, it's purposeful, tremendous pain because she wants to. Right. It is a vendetta. I don't know. For me, the whole Zutara thing. I think you need to back out. You got to explain the Zutara thing. Just in case everybody's not a rabid fan like you. For for people who are not rabid fans of this coupling for the past 11, 15 plus years, however long it's been, (laughs) Avatar The Last Airbender has a kind of main foil to the uh, group that's going around trying to save the world, and that is Prince Zuko. He is a banished prince from the Fire Nation. Um, His past is very troubled he's very brooding he's kind of i don't want to say the token villain like the token brooding villain character he can definitely appear like that sometimes and i guess that's really just like an easy way to explain it um 
obviously I am being a super hypocrite right now, give, putting him into a trope when this whole show is about <laughs> dismantling tropes. But just to kind of give people an idea who have never watched the show before, that's kind of what he's all about. Eventually, though, he does end up joining up with the group. And one of the biggest moments in the show happens in an episode where Katara and Zuko are kind of trapped in these caverns. And Zuko's face is marred by this scar that his father gave him for disobeying him and basically, quote unquote, like dishonoring him before he was banished. Katara uses this spirit water that she got that's got special properties and offers to heal Zuko of his scar. And they have this like very touching kind of almost like what if moments. Of course, it's cut short by, you know, the the, the avatar boy ruining it. In. The boy ruining it. It. Zuko at that point betrays Katara's trust that she is kind of instilled in him in that moment. And he pretty much turns on the group. Um, this is all before he actually ends up going to join them, before we get the the lovely hi Zuko here. <laughs> <laughs> And so again, eventually he does end up joining up with them and Katara has a really difficult time trusting him, which I personally think has more has less to do with him than obviously the trauma that she felt when she was younger, which we can we'll totally dive into her trauma um, in a few here. The the pairing of Zuko and Katara as a ship, which for those who are not avid weeaboos, a ship is basically in the in the mind of a fan, the couple that they really appreciate on the show romantically. I just really liked Zuko and Katara because Katang felt like a cheap out to me. Katang is the couple of Aang and Katara who ended up together. It felt like a cheap out because it felt like we were just giving this boy who is the token white male protagonist hero, we're just giving him what he thinks that he deserves. It was really heartbreaking for me to see it go that direction because it's like I said before, Katara has said herself that she's not the kind of person to settle down. Their relationship just feels like a relationship born out of convenience. She was the first face that he saw when he like awoke from his hundred year slumber and kind of was infatuated with her at that point to almost an annoying degree. And I know Ali a hundred percent disagrees with me on this, and she is gonna eviscerate me on it. Oh, what you allow totally defending fine. opinions on your podcast? Oh my god, oh, wow. do I? <laughs> what a mistake. Um, I personally feel like they're not just a cute couple. It's sort of like an exhibition of how strong characters, especially strong female characters, can develop and like make choices beyond the boundaries of like what's actually expected of them. And I think that Katara and Aang ending up together, it's what's expected of her. And that was kind of like almost a gut punch. Whereas if she had either ended up with Zuko, who is this totally different character who also has a love interest in the show. I mean, her her whole denial of a story arc is problematic to me, but I would have loved to see more of her in the show. I just, I don't know. I just have a, I have a lot of feelings about it. So, you know, I think the idea of Zutara has some merit, but I don't necessarily think that every relationship needs to be that two very strong, bold personalities that need to be together in this fierce passion. Or that sounds bad. Like passion's important, but it seems like, okay, these are two very strong characters. They've been through trauma together. They've both been through similar traumas. But I also think that it's kind of good to acknowledge that there are other kinds of relationships, especially because that kind of relationship, two people, one 
who have gone through very similar traumas, maybe a bit broody together and they just wind up together. And it it is a very, I don't know if I would say overplayed, but it's definitely a commonly used idea. And with Aang and Katara, I see it as they, they built their relationship from starting off as a friendship. They've had a lot of experience together. They come from different backgrounds, but they still have this kind of give and take between each other. They don't always understand exactly what the other needs, but they still do their best to respect it. And they formed a relationship out of mutual trust, mutual respect. They developed a a kind of that soft, growing love versus that, like, I feel like would be a fierce and quickly outed passion if it had been Katara and Zuko, I feel like she and Aang have that more long-term, slow-growing, but stronger in the end kind of relationship together. They have a foundation. I also like always hearken back though to specifically the Ember Island Players episode, um, season three, episode 17, where they meet outside and Aang basically kisses Katara and she pushes him and she's like, this isn't the right time. Like, I'm confused. I don't know. That just spoke to me a lot about like the idea of consent. And I think that that kind of painted a picture of Aang as a like his romantic personality to me as like someone who just is going to take what he wants and is not able to read the social cues. Like, and like, obviously do you want to time out? Can we give him enough yeah, credit that he's also exactly like fucking 12? Like, that do is- you want to go back to me being 12 years old? I would not. Yeah. I would have been the same kind of boat. Like, I really like you. And I, f- I just keep showing you like, so that you know that I mean it. Like, I think we do have to be a little gentle with the fact that, like, you've literally never navigated a romantic interest before because this is your fucking 12. And I don't know that I can discount the respect that he has always given her from a teaching perspective. Never once has he pushed back against Katara as an instructor, so I can't really buy into the whole, like, he doesn't respect her as her own autonomous person because he's demonstrated that, like, regularly throughout the show, and then when feelings get involved, it gets messy, not, which I think is very That's totally human. a valid argument about, like, that's totally a valid point. He distra- he displays the same kind of, I guess, romantic idiocy of a 12-year-old when he is like, Sokka, how do I get a girl to, how do I just show a girl that I like her? And he says, well, you just have to act disinterested. And he tries it and it does not go oh, well. Oh, yeah, I remember that. So I think it's along the lines of he's just kind of an, he, he's a 12-year-old. He's kind of an idiot sometimes. And yeah, but he doesn't do that again. It's like he learns like, okay, this was a bad idea. I messed up. And we don't see any regression from that. He, he learns. It's not that like, oh, the first time a girl says right. no, you just pursue her harder. That is not the reaction that you see from like most of the mainstream toxic masculinity kind of thing. Like they're taught like, no, you just have to like the, the she's the prize and you're the hunter. And yeah, like that is that's, not how that's came definitely an, like a, a valid point. I If it were a different situation, obviously, if Aang were if Aang grew up in a different way or had a chance to even grow up, had the opportunity to learn about these kinds of things. If you think about his background, like, I mean, he grew up with monks, like, like sort of idea or re- repressed idea about your your body and relationships, like, could you get? And you it know? seemed like they never showed him in a temple with female monks. It they all the flashbacks yeah. were always all men. That's a that's so true. I never really even thought about that. Wow, I th- I've never thought I've never thought about the fact that there were no women when I'm talking uh. about a <laughs> when I'm on a podcast talking about women. 
So let's talk a little bit about Katara's appearance. I I always find the way that fit like that female characters are presented physically as something that's super interesting. And it says a lot about the creator's vision of women and like their perception of women, especially when they're, you know, when a creator is creating a character that is of a different gender. I first of First and foremost, fully appreciate the commitment of the creative team on Avatar to portraying Katara as a fictional representation of Inuit culture. And like, they did such an amazing job on her costumes all throughout the show, depicting, you know, the furs and a more traditional style. This is what I really wished that we had gotten translated well in the movie. Like, I wish so hard that the live action movie represented that more. I wish and so just, hard the live action movie did There is no live action movie in Ba Sing Se. I think Katara's outfits overall, like, aren't perfect. I can't really even say that, like, they never tried to sexualize her, which, like, is a huge problem. Right up until the players episode, which I really, really liked that. That they made her player's character, like, super voluptuous and, like, crying and putting her boobs on everybody. Yes, it was, like, a parody. Yeah, the slit skirt that, like, it wasn't even a skirt. It was just two flaps of fabric. (laughs) Like, it's such a good, it was such a good parody on what the kind of character like they could have created if they were misogynistic assholes they decided to laugh and like have a good have a good punchline going about the way that female characters are treated in the world and i thought that that was a really like the ember islands players episode is probably one of my personal favorites like if not for just the play itself which for those who don't watch the show gonna say that i feel like i'm gonna say that a million times over the course of this podcast okay if you haven't watched the show i would be surprised that you'd be listening why are you clicking on this episode you won't even get it go back to square one watch the show then come back and revel in all of our great insights thank you about katara's outfit can i mention kind of a Yes. Personal geek you act. never have to ask, by okay. the way. Don't ask for permission <laughs> on this podcast. We do not ask for permission as women in this world to exist. Do not ask for permission to tell me so, something. So when I was about when I was in elementary school, I was obsessed with everything American Girl, and they had a spin-off series at the time Ooh. called Girls of Many Lands. One of the characters was Minip Minook. Sorry, Minook. She was a uh, part of the Yupik Inuit people. In Alaska. I think I'm saying all that right. But yeah, she was Yupik. She lived in Alaska in 1890. I have the doll and the book. And I was going through some old things that my things from when I was a kid. And I found my Minook doll. And she is dressed just like Katara, except her clothing is tan instead of blue. <laughs> and I, she doesn't have I hair loopies, unfortunately. Googling she just has braids. I, need to know. I have a note on here. Yeah, I have a note on here about the hair Ashes loopies. Ashes in the pathway. And like, I... Ch- Dude, it absolutely is the hair loopies. Oh my god, no, the braids from the yeah. front that kind of come down, that's legit and the, the doll same is super soft. Gist style. <laughs> Just oh to my say gosh, in the that's so fuzzy. I so even in the same so in the same article that I referenced earlier from the gamer, um, which I have to I have to kind of preface the article, and I'm not trying to trash the person who wrote the article at all, but that person also graduated from Brigham Young University, which really says I think all that we need to know about <laughs> about their education. 
as I trash them. I doubt that this person's going to listen She says to this as she trashes the, the person in their so education. If they do, I'm sorry. If they don't, and this actually just never even gets uploaded because we give up on this project, like, the week before we decide to publish <laughs> it, which, <laughs> fingers crossed, doesn't happen. But she also, like, talks about, she or he, I don't remember, talks about how the hair loopies were, like, inspired by Grand Grand. They were. Like, they were inspired by actual Inuit culture. Like, like not impractical, which is what the article says. Like, it's actually something that, like, the Inuit people in that area, in the region that inspired the show, that's what they wore. I had no idea until a Facebook page showed pictures of Inuit women with their hair in loopies. I Someone commented, like, I had no idea. I threw in, I also had no idea. I had wondered where it came from. Somebody said, I think you're in the minority here, Allie. And I'm like, hmm, really? Because as the, you know, as people start liking your comment and they start commenting, oh my gosh, me too. And almost no one said, oh yeah, this other guy's right. I definitely knew about this. And I'm like, see, a lot of people didn't know. We weren't exposed to much about, honestly, any indigenous or non-white cultures at all. So sorry, I didn't know hair loopies were a real life thing until very recently as an aside something i found out recently uh princess leia's buns were very much um a mexican indigenous culture hairstyle that people kind of got really pissed about star wars basically kind of just grabbing go check that one out too um i'm I'm literally googling inuit hairstyles and the very first picture comes up that they're fucking hair loopies like that is just dead on what they're pulling from so then be like oh it was inspired (laughs) by grand grand i'm like yeah that's like me wearing like a beehive from the 60s and everyone's like oh she's inspired by her grandma i'm like no bitch it's the look do you see these glasses like yes so should i cut my hair short dye it white and just make it kind of fluffy and say it's inspired by my grandma yeah like it's just to me it's like the cultural representation in the show it was so important i think not not just for people who are of that culture but also for people who are not like clearly you know we're getting some kind of education here as far as you know whether or not it's it's just a quick foray into what the indigenous people wore like it it, it tells us it tells us that it's there it gives us what is the word i'm looking for i hate it when don't you hate it when you forget a word and then you can't think of what it is I do want to, after a couple minutes, talk about her Fire Nation outfit, too. Oh, my God. Because that does deviate a lot, and I find it very fascinating. But it's a completely different culture. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And yes. I always, I was raised to believe that if you wear a midriff showing shirt or you show your stomach, like girl, good girls just don't do that in public. So it was a shocker. And I kind of looked up like what cultures just naturally do this. Because- oh, there she goes. She's a loose woman now right into the stereotype. <laughs> I did not remember my word. Okay. I'm sure someone's going to scream it at me on some platform. I really hope that people listen to this to correct us on all the shit that we get wrong. Like if we, if we, <laughs> Miss- do it nicely though. <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah, please do it nicely. If we're not pronouncing these these words correctly, it's just because we have lived with this ignorance for so long that we're just, you know, using our own knowledge. So please feel free to correct us if we're not pronouncing these Inuit words right or if we're not pronouncing, you know, the names from the show I hope we would get right. M Night Shyamalan fucked it up for everybody. So What do you mean, Ong? <laughs> what do you mean, Ong? <laughs> oh my god. They did not. Really? Wait, have you seen Oh it? no shit, Kendra's never I've seen I've seen bits and pieces. I I will never actually watch it because it's like, how is the only person of color Zuko in this whole fucking movie? I finally watched the whole thing because I felt like I could not adequately snark on it until I'd watched it. And oh my god, it was it was a trip. 
It's a really good movie. Somebody, there was a really cool um, idea they had when Netflix was still doing like what we all hoped would be good. And I know in recent news, we are like very sad about the departure of the original showrunners. But that aside, somebody had a really great idea. Like, wouldn't it kind of be cool because so much time has passed, all of those actors are going to be significantly older. Have them be the Ember Island players as a redemption. (laughs) Yes, I'm I'm 100% on board with that idea. I think that that's fucking hilarious don't i don't know what a girl for it on yes they and- do <laughs> they need to find a girl to play on oh my god i just poor deb somebody no. call scarlett johansson can we yeah there we go scar jo can be on. <laughs> no i like let's all just have a moment of silence real quick for dev patel coming off of slum dog millionaire to fucking play zuko like he did the best that he could with what he was given <laughs> And then Jeremy Irons, like, isn't he a knight? He's in this fucking movie. <laughs> and then like, there's yeah, but you say that like Cats doesn't exist. And like, yeah, they're like, oh. freaking everybody's in Cats. That still doesn't make it good. I know that in the non-COVID timeline, Cats was not actually ever released. So I, oh, I, I enjoyed every bit of the $15 I paid to see that movie in theaters. I absolutely did. It's one of my favorite musicals. That movie entertained me to no end. Let's, I, to be fair, I enjoyed it. Not because it was good, but because it was so bad. It was like, are these cats the size of the train tracks? Are these cats the size of the door? Are the cats the size of the pearl necklace? Nobody knows. And on top of that, I also paid money once to go see a ridiculous movie in theaters. And that ridiculous movie was the Sharknado double feature. Uh, It was $7 at the Regal Cinemas in Ocala. And... It was one of the best nights of my life. So we can all take enjoyment from awful movies, but Avatar The Last Airbender, actually, sorry, it's not called Avatar The Last Airbender. It's it's just just called The Last Airbender. Airbender. It's not a movie so much as it is what happens when you give an incel the money to make a movie. It's a dumpster fire. Like, I'm... (laughs) It's the so part bad. where the the quote unquote blue spirit po- peeks his oh head down from God. the wagon. It's like the ring. It's like watching the ring. It is the most hilarious part of that movie. It oh. was worth watching that whole terrible thing just for that scene. If you never watch it, Kendra, just go watch the cinema sins on it. <laughs> yes. No, I'm just looking at like how bad Zuko's scar. Like that is non-existent. I had to click <laughs> on that picture to even see that there was quote unquote scar. I'm like, did you just like it looks like his little sister went crazy with her blush palette? That's it. That's what you get there. Yeah. And then Azula goes crazy with blood. like that is a his burn is a full on fucking deformity. It melted the skin around his eye. Uh-huh. Like his, his eye is not shaped the same. Eye as much like he's you yeah. know he's got irritation. The oh, writers yeah. confirm that he can see out of it, but it's still going to be a problem his whole life. And I one last aside and I'm I'm blanking on her name right now that like infuriates me is that Azula was only in the movie for like 12 seconds or something like but the actress that plays her is the same actress that plays Margaret Delisle what Oh, no, that's the voice actress. I was, like, trying to Google and back you up. Oh, I was yeah, like, oh, no, no that's the actual the, Azula. The Azula in the in the, mo- in the show, uh, or sorry, in the movie, um, is the same actress that plays Margot on The Magicians. And her acting in The Magicians is, like, impeccable. And if you've never seen The Magicians, I am really hoping that that is a show that we'll cover eventually because the writing of female characters on that show is bar none. Summer Bischel. Summer Bischel, yes, yes. Yes, I think it's Bischel or Bischel, whichever. Correct. Again, correct us if we're wrong. (laughs) Or Bischel, please 
listen to the show. And also, <laughs> but also, how do you take Azula out of the story? Like that was 100% my favorite part about Katara's. We're going to, we're going to loop this all back in like their fight at the end. Like she didn't blood bend her like she could have. She won it with her actual water bending. The movie is only book one water because they actually thought they were going to make three of those things. <laughs> yeah. That's what oh, my it, sweet summer children. That's what makes it so much worse. Oh, man. I guess like one other one final point to kind of circle back is there's actually a, a very lesser known comparison. I actually found this when I was doing research on Avatar for this podcast, particularly. There's a comparison to the Virgin Mary. So in um, season two, episode 20, The Crossroads of Destiny, which is the season finale, finale of chapter two, Aang is injured and Katara is holding him. And a lot of people will draw comparisons to a famous Michelangelo sculpture, La Pieta, which is a sculpture of Mary holding a wounded um, Jesus. What is with people always wanting to compare women in fiction to the Virgin Mary? Because it's one of the things that Yale said that we are. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, we can end the pod. <laughs> we can end the- <laughs> <laughs> Yale said it, so therefore we are. I see a... a f- you know, someone who loves this person and he's injured, I don't see like, I don't know, the Virgin Mary comparison is so, I guess position wise, it makes sense. Right. It's obviously like, and I don't know if this was an artistic choice that the creators made. I'm sure it wasn't just because like, this is clearly the the obvious choice of actions that Katara would take. I mean, she would, she would go to her friend who is injured, who she cares about very deeply to, you know, try to help him. And I think that the comparison of this scene to the Virgin Mary, it's like, there's so many comparisons. to this So like 100%, Mary, Mary is seated and Jesus is spread across her lap. You can see both of her legs coming out from under him and she's sitting down, cradling him. Katara is full on upper body lifting Aang's whole self. Like, oh my God, the core and arm strength. Oh on my girl. God, oh, yeah. She's fucking heaves him up. Like that's just her sit, like kneeling, holding him. She ain't sitting. To me, the, like the Netflix um, live action series should have John Cena playing every female character. <laughs> Thanks for that mental image. Especially Toph. Like, 100% Toph. You can't see me? Exactly. He the should be Toph as Ember Island players. Oh my God, yes. Yes. We are going to just spend the rest of this episode creating our dream cast of the Ember Island players. Do you guys know that Toph actually, the writers were making her to be a boy, and then someone said, wouldn't it be funny if it was a girl? So they literally took everything they wrote about her and turned it into a girl character. That's that's an, a whole nother can of worms to open up. Is, yeah. is the one thing that I really like they didn't explore was the one time she, like, thought Sokka saved her and it wasn't him and she was just like well never gonna talk about that again and she literally never did ever like didn't come up again because she was like oh Sokka clearly is about this girl never mind bye the end it was amazing there is theory well hmm. Korra spoiler there is theory fan theories that he and Toph did uh, bang it out of a child oh god but it's not there's no confirmation also we don't even know what happened to Sokka and I am salty about that wait what we never find out what happened to Sokka no we have no the very first episode Katara is like 80 million years old (laughs) and she's just like everyone's gone now like my brother and all my friends and like you meet Toph's daughter and like it's fine you don't actually care about Korra so we don't have to talk about it no, I mean, I'm just fascinated. Watch the show. I, 
I may have to. Okay. I started this episode literally swearing that I was never going to watch the fucking Legend of Korra. And now I might have to. It's like on Netflix. All right. I am. Firebender outfit. Oh, yes. yes. Firebender outfit. We have to get to that. Okay. So when I was growing up, belly shirts were kind of a common thing. There was a couple of girls who would wear them to school. I liked the look. I wanted one. My mom was like, you are not leaving the house with that. You were allowed to wear belly shirts to school. That Yeah. One no, one. fucking Buffy the Vampire Slayer lied to me. I was like, it's going to be so much fun. Look at these cute little crop tops because everybody on the high school shows on TV wore them. And then my school was like, hey, your fingertips are longer than your shorts, you slut. Go home and change. We oh actually, God. we our school wasn't very strict on dress codes. Like in third grade, a girl was wearing a crop top. In middle school, we had a lot of low cut shirts, whale tails hanging out. And, and there really wasn't anything done about it with mom. <laughs> About that, that was the thong thing for the longest. The wind. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm not saying it sh- something should have necessarily been done because I'm not about shaming girls for having bodies and sometimes your clothes just don't fit well. I guess that's, that's just yeah. But there was those thongs were made to be seen. Like you have those ones yeah. that were giant fucking ass butterflies and stuff. Like that was definitely an intentional style for a while there. Which I'm like, yeah, probably don't have like your ass out of your pants at school. But I had just forgotten about the whale tail like term. Oh, god, god, I'm old. I I guess maybe I just went to a more strict high school because like they policed the fuck out of our dress code in high school and like so I went to like a a conservative rural school area too I just remember (laughs) that like and I remember posting about this recently because of all the like anti-mask debates and like comparing that to dress codes in school and stuff I just remember that like I was told once that my shorts were too short and I was told to change there were other people that like wore way shorter shorts than I did like whose fingertips went well past you know where their shorts ended and they weren't asked to change and I always wondered why that was and like it wasn't until I got older that I realized oh they were only policing the bodies that they didn't want to see like they were only telling the girls who were chubby or who they like they were only telling really them to like to pull down your or pull your shorts you know to a place where they're you know an acceptable length or wear a jacket to cover up these other girls like it was okay for them to be exposed because they were being dis- yeah and they were skinnier they were attractive holy holy shit the idea <laughs> of adults policing young children like that telling them to cover up because you know with and I'm sure that obviously like it wasn't just male teachers that would tell people to you know cover up so and it obviously wasn't just you know people with those kind of ideas or those kinds of mindsets but just how inappropriate it is for like an adult to say your body is a sex object that's going to distract other people who are your age and also me so you need to cover that which I think might lend itself a little more to the Aang does respect Katara because no matter what she was wearing, even when there was a scene where they went swimming, like, you know, episodes before she ever got to Fire Nation, he never treated her oh, differently yeah. because of yeah. that. In any kind of way, was it just like, am I oogling her or anything like that? Like, she was always his there friend, were, regardless of what she had There were moments where it was like, you know, they show that kind of... Like, oh, you look stunning. Yeah, like the, like, glistening Wait. effect. Like, well, being struck, like, I've never seen you in that color. Yeah. Like, I've never seen you wear your hair like that. It was never like, hey, girl. Well, like, and I that never actually, got specifically that when it. she did wear the Fire Nation outfit, that was, like, one of the first scenes that they showed her, I believe, was, like, Aang, not, like, ogling her, but, you know, seeing her in a different color. So, 
ab- like so abruptly changed. Down. Yeah, and her hair down, and like I mean, obviously, you'd clearly seen her with her hair down and stuff before, but the whole effect, the whole effect of like the color shift. It's an interesting concept to me. The red being this image that like made him say, "Oh my god, wow!" Like, look at how beautiful she looks in red. Like, red is such a sexual color. Like, people see red as a sexual, seductive, and it's. I think it's a color of power. Like, it's clearly a color where people draw those images from. And I think that those are images that are definitely, you know, you can relate them back to power, especially power in women. And to see to see a young girl depicted in a way where she not only owns her body and is comfortable wearing that, especially after not ever having worn something that's, I guess, as exposing. Yeah. For one thing, she couldn't wear that in the water tribe. She'd right. freeze. <laughs> yeah, she'd freeze to death. To show her just totally comfortable with it and like owning that this is like, this is just an outfit. This is just what I have to wear right now. You know, like it's actually like a really powerful message. I think it's a really positive message on how you're still the person that you are like deep down underneath like all the clothes and the makeup and everything. Oh my God, that cosplayer is amazing. Yep, I just I was like, ooh, red cosplay. Oh, she did one of the Water Tribe too. We should we should put all of these links in and give this uh, cutie pie sensei. I actually know her from doing um, the um, Road to El Dorado oh. character, whose name it's Casey. Like she nailed it. I was just like, oh, it's you. Has That's she why done you look familiar to me. From Hunchback, because I feel like if she hasn't, she should. She could rock that. Yeah. Cutie Pie Sensei cosplayer, 100% there. I will tag her when I make the Instagram post for this. I also want to throw in, like, why did the midriff thing become sexual? I mean, it's practical. They're in the Fire Nation. It's probably really hot. And she's wearing a full skirt. Like, girls got to get some airflow somewhere, you know? Or other people in the Fire Nation, too, like Ty Lee, eventually Suki, they all wear similar styles. And in the comics, too, a character that we were introduced to named Corey dresses the same way. Ty Lee is even like in the beach scenes like she's even shown a bikini and like with voluptuous upper half you know she's shown as this powerful I I would love to do a whole episode on like some of the side characters especially Tylee because she's one of my favorites yeah but don't they make a point of Tylee that she like flirts with guys accidentally and leads them on and like that's I think it's her like and she's like, wait, I'm what? And they like, give her a lot of shit about it. She's like, yeah, but I'm not. Exactly. I'm just being like who I actually am. And they're taking right. it and the wrong way. Like, and that's probably their problem. And it's just like that power of, of her mind, like basically saying like, this is the body, like this is the vessel that I was put into. Like my brain is who I am. My mind is who I am. My spirit is who I am. This is just the vessel that I was put into. I can't help that people are attracted to this. And if they're going to just be let on, then like that's what happens. Like I'm not... You know, I just think that she's a very powerful character who could get her own spinoff show. I would love to see a whole Avatar The Last Airbender Circus Freaks spinoff. Yeah, the Fire Nation outfit is definitely... I could see that it is such a good point of contention for the for the showrunners to have chosen. For them to say, okay, these characters, they are young enough that they should not be being sexualized. But they are old enough that it's an unfortunate inevitability in our world today. What's going to happen if we show this character's midriff? I think it was almost an experiment for them. And it... Well, and it... It must have gone well because can we, a brief aside from Katara, talk about that scene where Zuko goes to talk to Sokka in his tent and he's like, hello, Suki, and there's oh, candles yeah. and he's got a rose in his teeth and his hair is down. I'm like, holy shit, y'all planted a fuck. Oh, like, yeah. what? Well, afterwards, he's playing with Lei because he got laid. What? Oh my God. <laughs> 
Yeah, I had my mind blown. I'm like, that is the best subtle, like, hey, 16, 17-year-olds who have been on their own for years, and, like, you guys are probably more adult and have had to make really hard decisions, and you probably are a little more grown up than most 16 and 17-year-olds. Like, yep, yep, that's a thing. It is, it is to me, that's such a, it was such a good choice, like, a good, bold choice for the, for the Fire Nation outfit, but I never really even noticed the whole, it's one of those things that, like, you know how people make references to the jokes all the time in, like, shows like The Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy and like that it's all of these very subversive like sexual commentary and like it just goes over your head because you're a child i i kind of feel like do we have any last thoughts on katara right now how are we how are we feeling closing arguments on katara um there are like that being said all of this is a kid's show and i understand that the writers are not going to dissect this and make this like a flagship for philosophical discussion and like like i appreciate all of that in the context of what they did i think they got a lot of it right with the platform that they had in the time the show was made this is also a decade ago and for being a decade ago on a prevalent children's network right. i think they got a so lot there of is right. another part that i do want to kind of talk about real quick yes yeah we can dub this in later we'll fix it in post so this is also actually in the comic series the promise there is a scene where um ang and katara travel to bossing say because they want to go see the earth king and they run into some some avatar fangirls they're so excited oh, to meet yeah. ang they've got shirts with his face on it yeah and they're like we met come see your clubhouse i am not sure what they called it sorry but they're like come they had basically created a clubhouse that they did their best to make look like an air temple like a shrine to him yeah but it was they were just like so excited and katara right away had this kind of jealous salty thing going on plus it didn't help that one of the fangirls was like so you're the avatar's first girlfriend and she said what do you mean first and the girl just kind of gives her this horrible little sly smile and she's like oh my gosh so they go in there and ang is having the greatest time as we learned from kiyoshi island he loves the entertaining yes He loves attention. He loves entertaining people. So he's having like the time of his life. And Katara's sulking in the corner. And one girl, she finds she has this instrument that was like some that they used to play a lot at the air temple. So Aang plays it. He makes air scooters for all these girls. Momo's having a great time eating and being doted on. They're having like the time of their lives. Katara's sulking in the corner. And then they, I think they do stay the night because they needed somewhere to stay anyways. And after they're leaving, no, they're leaving and Katara's like, well, I'm glad you had fun. Just kind of sarcastically. And Aang's like, honestly, like that was, that was so close to being back with my people again. I know, I know they're, fangirls but that felt like I was back with my own people and and Katara just kind of realizes like your jealousy was understandable but not really it was a bit unfounded here and she instead of getting snarky at him or anything like that she just says like don't thank me I don't deserve it but she respects him for for that and she understands like wow this did mean a lot to him and then later when he meets more of these fangirls and realizes how dedicated they are to the air nomad culture he kind of oh, read- the air acolytes is that yes. how the air Okay, yep. I've heard about the Aracolites. I just had never actually known what their origin was. Oh, yeah, they, okay. they started as fangirls, basically. And so once he decided, he dubs them kind of the Aracolites, and he, he's like, this is kind of strange. I'm not sure about this, but you guys have this passion for air culture, and he begins to teach them. And from then on, Katara is very supportive of it. She had an, I mean, she had a natural reaction. You're, you're young, you've got your boyfriend, suddenly a bunch of girls are just getting so excited about him and doting on him. And jealousy, especially 
considering that they're teenagers and this is her the jealousy was natural but the way that she like handled it yeah Yeah. and when she realized like how much this meant to him and she put aside her own jealousies and insecurities to support him and just kind of it showed some maturity and development in herself too to just step back and realize like this is important for him and I'm going to support him through this that also shows like the power of fangirls like don't the air acolytes like eventually help rebuild like the southern air temple yeah they do okay they, See, I don't, I don't, I, this is why I've never read any of, like, the comic books, <laughs> but, like, I actually, like, know parts about them because of all the fan fiction that I read, and, like, I've, the Air Acolytes, obviously, like, it, it's an idea that goes across a lot of those fan fictions. I'm like, well, all these people are not obviously having the same idea. Like, this has to come from the story. That's awesome that, like, they actually started as just, like, fangirls and then became people that, like, were cultural, like, vessels to carry on traditions. Like, that's, that's freaking awesome. Sorry, I can't. Sorry. Sorry, Kendra. You're not going to get to enjoy the visuals. This is an audio (laughs) medium anyways. It's fine. Because she's got a big enough character, like, and that's something I really, really like about Katara that I wish I could do more better with personally. Like, she is able to check herself or she will let other people check her when she's like, yep, I'm out of line. When she gets, when she's teaching Aang and he starts passing her up and she's like super pissed about it. It's like, I worked hard. I've been working my whole life on this. You've been doing it for five seconds and you're better. Stop showing off. I need that scroll so that I can get as good because she starts getting competitive and then realizes that's entirely not the point and that she needs to work on her own shit when she needs to work on her own shit. And that's what makes her so good by the end of the show is like she has gone at her own pace and kept challenging herself where she needed to. I feel like there are so so many of these moments in the show that I really couldn't just pinpoint one. But I definitely feel like there are moments where she literally just like takes a breath and you can just see the frustration in her character. And she's just okay, I need to take a beat and collect myself and then we can continue. That is such a good perspective for a girl to have, especially of herself. Yeah, being able to just kind of introspectively self-correct like that. Yes. It is so important. It is such a sign of emotional maturity. And some people can't nail that skill down their entire lives. But for her to have it down as a teenager, that's pretty incredible. And I think part of it could have been contributed from from the fact that she was basically forced to become an adult as a little kid. Yeah. And even when she says like, wow, I haven't been penguin sledding since I was a kid. And Aang's like, you still are a kid. It also shows us how quickly she's had to grow up. Right. It contributed to her emotional maturity, too. Also, can we, can we, sorry, I just, time out. The way that they do dates in this show is BG and AG, as in before genocide and after genocide. Holy shit. Holy shit. That is not okay. <laughs> this is a kid's show. Holy shit. I just, I was like, what does that oh, yeah. stand for? I'm like, oh my God. All right. This, ugh. Sorry, continue. That just blew my mind. One thing that we didn't really get to touch on, which is the idea of like Katara and grief. It's such a huge thing, especially for me, seeing this show again as I got older. And like the first time I saw this show, my mom was still alive. Seeing it when I got older and like after having experienced grief in a very parallel way to Katara, just to draw some similarities here. She lost her mother when she was very young. I lost my mother when I was very young. My sister does not have the same perspectives on the loss of our mother as I do. Therefore, I have taken my grief out on her in ways that haven't been productive to either of our grieving. And 
I also have had to become the mother figure and had kind of own up and take care of those things. So there's there's honestly like a lot of parallels to my own life that I see in Katara, which is I think one reason why I love her as a character so much. She also kind of grows through her grief in a way that we get to see in the show that is pretty amazing. I mean, it's her going from telling Sokka, oh, you didn't love her like I did. Her grief is such a huge part of who she is as a person. She was also the very last person to speak with her mother before she died. Her mother died to protect her. It's like she's allowed to feel these feelings. She's allowed to act on these feelings and express these feelings. Obviously, what she said to her brother is not true and she doesn't even think that it's true which they make clear in the show and is externalizing because she like feels so vehemently responsible for her mother's death yeah i think that's the point like when she's lashing out what everybody seems to miss with that grief is she knows her mom is dead because of her like that's not a thing that's debatable like it's not you your fault as a kid like you didn't do anything to make that happen your mom made that choice as we talked about like mothers are willing to die for their kids like that's not an exaggeration but she knows full well like you don't remember mom and you don't remember mom because that's my fault too so i think that's where she's like she lashes out at Sokka because like i don't even remember her and it's not that big deal to me and like she takes the blame for that as well but she just doesn't know what to do yeah with that and feeling. i think a lot of that too is that like Asaka is her older brother my sister is older than i am just speaking from my own experience i feel like some of that that aggression and some of that anger almost kind of stems from a jealousy like i was honestly jealous of my sister having three more years with my mom than i did and you know to act out and kind of lash out towards the person who got that little bit more time i mean like when you've lost a parent there's nothing that you wouldn't do to get even just a second back with them to have have to have had to live with that her whole life and especially to know that she is the reason her mother died she doesn't understand her she doesn't know how to come to terms with those feelings herself and she's constantly being told by other people especially men because that's what she's really left with other than her grandmother like she's constantly being told by men like she was not responsible she didn't have anything to do with it you know her mother made a choice so it's not her fault she's being told this by men who weren't there when it happened and i think to her it's like that idea of like this is my reality that is that has become because of what happened so did she know that the man came looking for a waterbender or did she just know that hey my mom told me to leave and I left and now she's dead. I think she found out when she was older because that's why she seeks out like that specific guy. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why the ultimately the Zutara thing, like why it didn't happen in the show because she spends so much time like everyone's like, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. Okay, well then whose fault is it? The Fire Nation. And I think just especially Zuko being a prince of the, the royalty that did that, like his dad essentially is the one that made that happen and he stood to inherit and for he a long also- time fought to have his right to inherit that legacy like that's the thing he actively pursued forever so for her i'm trying mm-hmm. to give you a chance i'm trying to be the bigger person you betrayed that of course you did because fire nation and that just solidifies that for her i think i think also like he is literally the very first face of the fire nation that she sees 
since her mother has been killed by them. So like if you really think about like the impression that you've had that you've been carrying of the Fire Nation your whole life and then the very first opportunity that they appear to you, that very first person that you see, you're going to attack those feelings to that person. And then she got over it for a second and was allowing herself to like, okay, you know what? Like you're an individual and I'm an individual. Maybe we can get past this. And then he ruins that. Like, everyone's like, oh, she's so awful to him when he tries to make good on that. I'm like, yeah, because he has broken that trust in a way that is literally earth-shattering. Yeah, that she, like, like, literally spent the majority of her life, like, building up that, building up to that moment and that to the Fire Nation for taking her mother away from her like they did. And she never gets the chance to let those feelings be realized into action. And so when she's finally learning that, like, maybe I don't have to be angry anymore because this person who I thought was the the physical representation of all of this aggression that I've had for so long, if they willing to be a good person and to make amends on that and then all of a sudden those amends are just like ripped out of her hands oh okay well you guys are actually a thousand times worse than what I thought because you're gonna dangle this in front of my face and then just take it away from me again what the fuck I think fully that her at like that her attitudes towards Zuko when he comes back are warranted I mean I wouldn't think about if you were in that situation it's like just you when know, she comes in his room and just cold stone cold yeah him like 100% I will fucking end you like that is the most calculated like she's not mad she's not hysterical she's not emotional in any way she's like just so you're clear I will end you if you fuck this up for my friends and like that to me was just one of her being like yep this is what it is like I loved her in that moment because that is not that is not a knee-jerk reaction no, that, that she did there at all. Also, that kind of demonstrates, I guess, a bit of a, a mixture between that loose woman and the mother. The mother figure that we might think of as someone who's more, like, caring and nurturing, but also... They forget about of, the protector. Yeah, yeah, and they, a mother, if you threaten the ones she loves or her children, or I guess in Katara's case, the friends that she's been taking care of and hurting like cats this entire time, she will end you, and she does not care if yeah. you mess with them you're done like that is such a mother thing but at the same time because she's being so assertive against especially against a man it kind of goes into that loose woman territory because it's not the stereotypical nurturing but 100% that has nothing to do with the sexuality which is why I hate that definition of like if you buck stereotypes that just makes you basically a trollop and I'm like well that has nothing to do in any way with right. any sexual anything like I don't know like there's just a reason that you run across a bear in the woods holy shit you run across a baby bear in the woods fucking get out like you don't play baby moose baby bears like no because mom is around and she will fuck your day up what was that little moose that um Sokka befriended and then that mom that was Katara (laughs) I agree 100% with you guys especially about the mother thing like I also think that like boiling it down though to just being like the protection of that a mother is willing to have for her children like I think that simplifies it a little bit more just because like I I have no plans of becoming a mother in my life like if it happens it happens but like yeah there are people that I would still die for like there are people that I would vehemently protect in the way that a mother would protect them I think it's I think there's two points about that that I find interesting and it's it's the fact that we always kind of attribute that V 
vehement passion and protection to a mother and maternal like figure. But I also think it's the idea that like a woman's validation comes from motherhood, which obviously this show, whether they were intending to or not, I think it kind of breaks a lot of that down, especially considering the fact that a lot of people do look at Katara as the mother figure because she is always there to take care of people. But then, I mean, but- and that's not to say that like she is the mother figure in right. the group, like she absolutely is. But that's not where it stops. And I think that's right. what loses me with people is like, well, she's the mother and Toph's the rebel. And I'm like, no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Pause. Pause. Yes. Like, there is not another motherly figure in the group. So, like, Katara is going to fit that role because she demonstrates those traits the most. But that is not the end of who she is to what people. And I think about? that's what gets Toph lost. Was maternal. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to The Damsels Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, check us out on Instagram or on our Patreon page for exclusive bonus content. Our music is by Kevin McLeod, and our cast, crew, and executive producers are Jane Barton, Kendra Buckmaster, Ali Dowdy, Christine Hinkley, Cassini Newland, Ariel Piven, Heather Schoberg, and myself, Elizabeth Riley. Equipment provided by Gordy Wilcox. Special thanks to our good friend, comedian, and rampant feminist disguised as a huggable grizzly bear, Brian Fox, for lending a hand.